There is no other species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. The young locusts are known as hoppers, for at this stage they're flightless. They find new feeding grounds by following the smell of sprouting grass. Normally, it takes four weeks for hoppers to become adults, but when the conditions are right, as now, their development switches to the fast track. As the vegetation in one place begins to run out, the winged adults release pheromones, scent messages, which tell others in the group that they must move on. And when groups merge, they form a swarm. locust eats its entire body weight every day and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Good morning. I'm excited by what we're looking at today, the prophet Joel. Now, before I uh, get into my excitement, though, I'm going to open us as uh, this is a Bible study. Open us with prayer, so let us pray. Oh, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, now I pray for wisdom, understanding that brings truth to your word in our lives, that uh, shows us the way, but more, connects us with you in a deeper, more loving fashion. So bless us through your spirit now in understanding, I pray. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, so it's a little interesting today. Hopefully by the time you're seeing this, 
you will have seen a uh, BBC broadcast quick little clip on locusts. Um, it's interesting, just let you know a few things I learned about locusts as I was getting ready for this uh, study today, is that one swarm of locusts, like you saw in the pictures there, can contain up to 10 billion different bugs, locust bugs, and as many as a thousand hatching, hopping locusts can occupy one square foot, which is about the size of what I'm working with half my Bible, that, that a thousand could fit on there as a newly hatched, and that a single locust can travel 3,000 miles. And it was interesting by that BBC clip that you've seen, if, I'm not sure if I kept enough of it, that their modus of locomotion is flying, but they only do so with the wind uh, that moves them around. But they can travel up to 3,000 miles during their li lifetime. And as you see, and as they spoke there, they strip the vegetation wherever they land. Um, and that a swarm can devour in one day what 40,000 people eat in one year. That's an amazing statistic in a number that comes from the uh, World Vision Factbook, and that was from 1987. That it is a no wonder when we hear about the plagues, especially the, the biblical plagues, and, and the fear that comes from locusts and swarms of locusts. And um, our study today, that in some ways is the focus. This, this calamity of a locust is followed by a drought. Uh, but it is the foundation for what Joel the prophet uses for his prophecy. And, and I'm going to speak more about that. And I'm going to try to keep myself short today. Uh, reminded again this week that the last was too long. But Joel is an exciting prophet to go about. And last week when we looked at Hosea, it was a, a focus on the northern kingdom and Judah. And, we, and I'm not going to go back into, but the issues that face Judah in their inconsistencies in worship and the covenantal relationship with with God and the majority of, of these prophets we're looking at are addressing there. But this is one Joel is specifically addressed, we believe, to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, Benjamin and Levi. And I'll share a little bit later why we, why we think that. Um, we're not sure at all when it's written. Uh, the southern kingdom um, to which he's writing, and, and, and again I will address this, that in, in all the other prophet uh, writings, the writer, the prophet says to whom it's going to. And, and that's always located in, within the kingship of those, that time frame in those periods. We have both here in Joel and, and a prophet we're going to be looking at later, Obadiah. We, we don't have those. Matter of fact, all we have in Joel's opening statements is that it's to the elders. Um, and, and so it's contextualized then by other statements in the written prophecy that commentators look at as to whether or not the temple was, was, was understood as being present or if exile has already taken place or if the temple has been destroyed by the uh, intonations of what is being written. And I'm again, I'll talk a little bit about that. But, but we, we are fairly confident, we, in the sense of, of my work in commentators reading, reading that it was directed towards the southern kingdom. Um, and and uh, again, not sure when, because there are... Uh, uh, language and imagery usage that, that, that indicate either before the exile or after the exile. Um, but by the time it's written, the southern kingdom is beginning to have its own issues of sinfulness and it's, 
and it's a failure of social justice. And we're, again, we're going to see more of that uh, in later prophets. Uh, it's failing like the northern king in its regards to the purity of worship. Um, as we shared last week in the northern kingdom, the uh, synchronization, the in uh, worship of Baal is also affecting the southern king. And the southern kingdom basically has an almost an every other kingdom uh, relationship of, of a good king to a bad king. And the bad king fails to stop the Baal worship or to, to rid those sites. And the good kings that are recognized as good kings in the historical context are the ones that always try to uh, pursue and, and, and remove those and, and allow only the worship of Yahweh to take place. But by the time that Joel is writing this back and forth or swing between good and bad kings has taken to where pretty much they are as sinful in the sense of their worship and covenantal obligations as the northern kingdom is. And so it appears to be addressed to them. Um, as I said last week, it's always important to know uh, names and if they have specific Hebraic understanding. And, and Joel, Joel uh, in Hebrew literally means Yahweh is God. And while that's a stressing of it, that's not the focus of this prophecy. Um, and so it doesn't have as much sense here. But the, the, the really thing that I like about Joel is it gives us a, a look at the contextualization, the way that a prophet uses something that is happening in that time frame that the people will understand and recognize. And then Joel also expands that beyond the, 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 the specific, and this is where we think of more the future orientation of prophets. He takes this uh, problem, calamity, crisis, and addresses it for specific need, but then expands that later um, for, to where we are even invited to recognize, and, and as I'm going to leave us with the questions at the end of this study today, how we might think about it. So that Joel is also uh, interesting in that his writing contains uh, uh, wording that is, is very similar to how most prophets wrote before the exile uh, with uh, a, a future orientation towards it. But he also has sections in here of prophet writing after the exile where they're interpreting a current crisis as a recognition of judgment of God. Um, uh, so it's, that's one of the reasons it's hard to locate Joel's historical orientation in his writing and the fact that he doesn't link us to any king that creates this kind of uh, uh, 800, 700, even up to 500 B.C. And, and different commentators will make different sense of that. Um, uh, but I don't want us to get too locked into that, but I like Joel because he kind of has this breadth of prophetic understanding and writing that is good for us in our reading and our study to see for as we're going to look at other minor prophets later. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say in the bottom of this is you read through Joel and he's very approachable, very readable. It's not real long. That uh, uh, it is more important for us to see what Joel is showing or sharing about God rather than what is maybe being revealed future-oriented. But Joel has both these foci in his prophetic work. The first chapter is very oriented to a specific understanding and the second two chapters expand that out to our understanding. Uh, I like also in the sense for this our second look 
for Joel uh, to be the prophetic experience that Eugene Peterson, qu I'm quoting Eugene Peterson, in his opening to the book of Joel, which I'm not going to be using in reading, but Eugene Peterson says, it is the task of the prophet to stand up at such moments of catastrophe and clarify who God is and how God acts. If the prophet is good, that is, if the prophet is accurate and true, the disaster, the calamity, the crisis becomes a lever for prying people's lives loose from their sins and setting them free for God. And that's what Joel does in an extraordinary manner. So, as I begin, I'm going to do like I did last week, and, and this may become a form for me for our remaining study. But I'm going to read the first couple of verses and then go to the last verses. So, Joel, Joel, Joel opens up with the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And that's the only historical references we get, and we don't know who Pethuel is other than he is Joel's father. And it continues in the second verse. Hear this, O elders, instead of a reference to a king. And again, reminding the classical writing prophets of which Joel is part of are, are addressed to the people or include the people in their prophetic judgments. So hear this, O elders, listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. And let your sons tell their sons and their sons, the next generation, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And now you see why I put at the very beginning that, uh, that imagery or that, that quick video clip of locusts so that we might experience minimally the fear as well as the overwhelming reality of a locust uh, catastrophe or crisis, uh, a plague that to which <coughs> Joel is referring and understanding. And now to do as I've done, I'm going to read the last uh, three or four verses um, in Joel from the third chapter. He writes, and it will come about in the day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. This is antithetical to what a drought, which you would see, and a plague, locust plague, uh, create. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. Again, it's a specific reference, and that's how we know why we think it's reference to the southern kingdom. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the water, the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness <coughs> because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. This is the future-oriented prophecy that I'm going to talk a little bit more about. And I, meaning God, will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Um, so just for me to unpack a few things for us to be aware of before I move us into kind of some conversation. Um, one of the things that's also striking about 
the book, the prophecy of Joel, is that there is no specific indictment. Like we saw in Hosea, the indictment that's going to the king and to the people for their failure of worship and, and their social justice ignorance. There is no indictment here. Joel is, is using this catastrophe, this plague, as a means of calling the people back into right relationship with God, but he doesn't identify what their specific wrong relationship or sin that's, that's creating that. The only clue that we get throughout the whole book is, is this prophetic message that comes in, the, in chapter 2, which is part, possibly part, uh, some of the most well-known, of, of, is the repentance re re request. Repent and return to me, meaning to God, with all your heart and rend your garments and, and your heart. And, but there's no specific for this that you have been doing. And all the other prophets except Jonah, who's not included uh, in, in typically, but we're going to be looking at Jonah in the prophetic genre. He's, he's in, historically included in the wisdom genre, but we're going to read him in our minor prophets, have at least some explicit indication of the behavior of the people that needs to be changed. And Joel is more concerned with the uh, reality of the result of that behavior or the motivation that is, is then leading him to his message of judgment and hope. And so one of the questions is, why then uh, would Joel not be specific? Or what is it about Israel's behavior that, uh, and, and forgive me when I'm using Israel now in the, the sense of the whole nation, not specifically Judah. Why is the, the reality of the behavior of people so displeasing that it's not being pointed out? And most commentators, and I had never thought about this until I did some work and reflect, is that, that Joel recognizes the peoples already know the knowledge. They have the knowledge of their tradition and their covenantal relationship and their worship responsibilities uh, in their understanding of Scripture that they can already make the connections. In his generalized call of repentance, they make, we make, our own recognition of our own sin uh, both individual and communal. And so that it allows him simply then to move into what is God asking? What is God calling for? One of the things you need to also, I have to remind myself about, because for us in our canon, it's that these books are, are kind of neatly contained and separated, and we can go and look at. But in the, the historical biblical canon, the, uh, uh, especially the Jewish one, there is no single minor prophet book they're all collected together and then even more importantly i think that that uh, joel and amos are butted up against each other or they just flow from one to the other actually and and that may have some literary reasons as much as i alluded to last week with the prophet hosea who is also very linked with amos but there is links then in joel and amos uh such that the the themes of joel of this exhortation and, and re re call for repentance is also picked up in Amos. Um, the, the way that Joel uses a specific um, um, event, these locusts and plague, uh, is also picked up in Amos for a specific event. And, and there's a mention of an er earthquake in both of these prophets' writings. Um, and then also there's a mention in Amos like Joel specifically of these locusts and the plague. And, and it's something that happened, obviously, that came about uh, 
not regularly, within lifetime memories. Uh, also, what we're seeing and what we're going to talk about more here in for Joel is this concept or understanding of the day of the Lord, a theme that is both judgment and call for repentance, is also a, a large theme in Amos that we're going to talk about in several weeks as we get there. Um, and, and so even though most commentators separate them by a history of at least 300 years, there is common themes that get picked up in the minor prophets. So what is the message of Joel that we're supposed to be wrestling with as we read through it? And again, I'm grateful that it's short enough that you can sit down and read through it in one reading. Uh, it, it's, it's what Joel is doing is bringing about or lifting up this concept of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, but it also has more than that. It's a, it's a, um, uh, it has an a eschatological and end-time understanding. And in order to understand the day of the Lord, we have to understand the covenantal relationship that has been expressed by God throughout the Decalogue, throughout Deuteronomy, throughout the, the Ten Commandments and then the Levitical books of, of what it takes to be in relationship with God and, and how to do that. And I keep mentioning over and over, especially these prophets' works, the, the, the horizontal and the vertical relationship, one with God that then is lived out with others. And it's a failure in either way, you cannot have one uh, relationship with God and fail to relate in, in loving care with people. And nor can you have a loving relationship with people that doesn't is not expressed in a worship uh, relationship with God. So that is a is primary to our understanding this covenantal relationship. Um, and and Joel makes use of this language that in both as the, the use of the word Israel to mean the whole people and not the specific northern kingdom <coughs> in his exhortation, reflecting that covenant understanding. Um, Joel's message is based on this covenant understanding that is moving towards this day of judgment or the day of the Lord, but its primary purpose is to motivate repentance of the people to relive correctly in their relationship, their covenantal relationship with, with God. And so uh, the day of the Lord, which is stemming from this specific event, is expanded out to include a, a historical and even future understanding of God's call to God's people. Um, and so it is... The message is referring to a decisive action of Yahweh, of God, to bring about God's plans for Israel, meaning the nation, in who they are with God. And so the first part of this message is the current locust plague is understood as, as expressed by Joel as judgment for their failure to live correctly, the people the nation, and more specifically, Judah. And it is a harbinger of the future day of the Lord that we will see, which is going to be uh, a second importance of Joel's prophecy, that a worse judgment is coming. And, and we see that in the second chapter when he talks about the human army in, in verses 1 and 11, who are reflective of the locusts, but this is a future sense to an army probably 
the Syrian or Babylonian army that may have already been or is on the field coming is announcing a worse judgment because of the failure. But the invitation is if you will repent, this will not happen. But we know it happened so that the, the repentance never took place. And, and this, this day of the Lord um, is expressed both in judgment, but also begins in this eschatological understanding to be one that expresses hope also. Because Joel is, is assured that if Judah repents, then they, the nation, will be rewarded with a physical and spiritual restoration that then gets wrapped up in this understanding of the day of the Lord. And, and so in its complete understanding or, or its more full understanding, this eschatological, the end time expectation of the, of the day of the Lord gets heightened when God will bring judgment not only against the nation Israel, but more will be to all these other nations, Egypt and Babylon and Syria and Assyria, Edom and so forth. And we talked about what those names mean as vindication for God's people because they will have repented and come back into their right relationship. God is going to bring about the consummation of all creation and the promise of the restoration of God's people that will be uh, uh, will take place at the same point, time and point as the judgment into all the other nations. And uh, this will get picked up again in one of the reasons Joel is so important uh, or is, is so well known, maybe not important is the right way to say it, is it's picked up in the New Testament, especially by Peter in his uh, Pentecost sermon in the book of Acts. But I want to make sure we understand that there's, there's this uh, a three-sided reality to the covenant that Joel is talking about that God has with God. It's God with God's people and the land. Remember, the covenant was a promise that of, of, of the numbers of people, but it also involves a promise for their own land uh, 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 and the promise of that was a, moved into in judges and, and, and never quite occupied that comes back in in our 1960s with the UN's movement uh, to to create the nation of Israel is seen as a continuation of this covenant promise that the Lord is jealous for his land and takes pity on his people is what Joel talks about um, anchoring the covenantal understanding of who God is with God's people and, and uh, um, is integral to the understanding in, in the day of the Lord when the land will be fully restored and when God's people will live into who they have been to be the priests to the world in that covenantal understanding uh, with judgment that is coming. That's a lot of information. I would say there's three simple themes that are present in Joel's uh, book here that if you can kind of hold on to while you're reading, will provide some understanding. And, and then the first is uh, calamities, plagues, crises are God's warning of judgment and especially warning of judgments that are to come. We're to see in these calamities. 
God's judgment which is promised to be coming. And we're invited to not only see and hear, but then heed these warnings. And heeding them means to return to God with all your heart. It's to recognize our sin that is causing that the nation's sin, the people of God's sin that is causing God's judgment. And we are to repent. And when we repent, when we return, when God's people repent and return, Joel says, then God's blessing will be poured out upon you, but more will be poured out on all the people, again, as a nation and as a community, as a people of God. And in that understanding, Joel, while has, has, has extreme prophecy of judgment, it also holds up this incredibly positive understanding of God's relationship with God's people. Because he is lifting up and showing the process by which the people of God respond to the prophet's call for repentance. That are always, in, especially in Joel, we see that these prophets call for, for repentance that are followed by the declarations of restoration that will come for God's people that are then also accompanied with judgment of, of, uh, upon those who have made life so difficult for God's people. And the day of the Lord then becomes understood in terms of both judgment and salvation and picks up later into the salvation of all creation uh, for all nations and all people. So when you read it, those three things keep coming out and, and you have to read it with a now and then perspective, uh, a straightforward fashion of you know, the coming of the day of the Lord that is related for us then what we pick up to the second coming of Christ when God will mount a final kind of attack on all the forces of evil and that is accompanied by the outpouring of God's Spirit, which is spoken of specifically in the second chapter, um, becomes and is picked up in Peter's preaching and his speech in the second chapter of Acts. That the conviction that, that he, Peter brings up is that for the church, the last days have already begun. The day of the Lord is in its process. It's here but not yet completed. And while we are in the world, we still await that final consummation that we see in Revelation with the coming down of the new Jerusalem, the image of the restored creation. Um, they is still in the future, but it is already started, which is very important for our uh, New Testament theology, uh, uh, covenant in, in relationship with God. Um, so trying to keep this short again today, I'm going to give you some of my final thoughts and then leave you with a, a couple of questions. And, and, and the, the thoughts, and, and I'm tied into this in that whenever I read Joel, I also think about my own life and as a freshman in high school when tornadoes came through my town and in the devastation and the weeks that followed in trying to clean up and in the conversations that so many people had as a young person with me about God's judgment, this calamity, what are we supposed to take from that? But the, the, that I pick up from Joel when I read that, that thought, but it also is that the idea of the ruin and destruction that lies ahead for all who do not trust the Lord. And, and, not, and, and all who belong to God through repentance and faith are promised 
that in the midst of this calamity, there's something else still to come. And without that faith, all that you are left with is the crisis and the destruction and the calamity. Um, God's indwelling presence, um, as well as his eternal abundance that is being promised and, and satisfaction and security with who God is, for believers outweighs the, pro, the, the being in the midst of loss and judgment, um, as well as in any time, but especially now, when believers feel that we're outnumbered and outweighed and bullied by the world and, and the reality of the sinfulness of the world and, and the calamities that are part of the world, even in the midst of a pandemic, we are invited by Joel to recognize and be encouraged that someday all worldly powers will also be assembled before God and receive God's justice. The day of the Lord is an invitation to recognize and claim that. And, and believers then are invited to consider that in, during times of crisis, we are, they are also times of opportunities for reflection upon the character of our lives and, and our relationship with the Lord and what is hindering that or the sinfulness that may be blocking it. And to recognize also for unbelievers that they, these become opportunities to recognize vulnerability and a need for a relationship with God that the believers, God's people, are invited to express for them and to them in the call of repentance, of reorienting, a turning around of one's life to God. So with that in mind, I think there are three questions uh, that Joel invites me to ask. And that is the first, and, and these will be following uh, as well or on the podcast. You'll just have to listen well. How do we respond to crisis in our own lives? How then also do we think about or understand the concept of God's judgment? That's a tough one in light of, of uh, holding intention, God's mercy and God's judgment, God's hesed and God's judgment. That uh, Sam Weddington, our pastor, has done an incredible uh, writing, thoughtful reflection upon in this week's Windows which is the windows that comes out today on uh, uh, March 15th. So please make sure you read that. It's titled Crisis. And then third, how are sin, repentance, and salvation understood both in, in, in terms of personal and communal understanding? And which then is more important? And, and why do you think that? Thanks for joining with me today. 